Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll look at the first 11 verses uh, this morning. This morning our text is about rest. Few things so important to us humans as rest. Rest is the cessation of normal activity. Rest is being released from the toil and strain of work. Rest is freedom from life's anxieties. Rest is a means of recovery and refreshment from fatigue. The opposite of rest uh, is activity, work, toil, strain, anything that produces restlessness or weariness. And rest is not only a physical need, but a psychological and social and spiritual need. In fact, God speaks of our relationship to him as entering or failing to enter his rest. Listen to what God has to say about that rest. Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God said, so I declared on oath, on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above it says, They shall never enter my rest. It, it, it still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again sets a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. And there we'll end our reading. <clears throat> this text is uh, pretty tightly woven together, so it's hard to kind of separate it out into, into points, but I'm going to try. And the message of this uh, passage seems to hang on two very closely related truths. The first one is this, that God has promised rest. God has promised rest. When I was in seminary, we often accused Dr. Ed Clowney, who was the president uh, of the seminary and taught some courses on preaching, we, we accused him of bicycling through the Bible. He, he would pick up a single theme and he would just trace that here and there and everywhere all the way through all the whole Bible, one text after another after another, trying to get us to see that in that one theme, the great unfolding of God's plan was before us in the scriptures. We kidded him about it a lot, but 
we also learned how the Bible hangs together and interprets itself. Well, in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews uh, takes us briefly bicycling through the Bible in this uh, subject of rest. His goal is that we see the various references to this theme in their proper connection, which gives us a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches and where it's headed and why it teaches all of that. In these few verses, we have four different references from the Old Testament, references to rest. They're not in neat chronological order. We wish they were. Number one, number two, number three, number four. But we'll try to put them in order and try to consider how one uh, relates to the next. These four references are not the point of the text. These are just kind of the setup so we can understand the real point of the text, which comes in our second point. So the four things. First, in verse 4, we read about God resting on the seventh day. That's the first reference to rest. Now, don't be concerned that the writer says somewhere somebody said here. He doesn't tell us in Genesis 2, 2, it says. There were no chapter and verse divisions back then, okay? Frankly, though, if all we had was the Genesis account... It wouldn't seem very significant to read that on the seventh day, God ceased from his work. Rest simply means to cease. Of course he ceased. He was finished creating. But immediately in verse 5 here, people entering into that rest of God comes into view. So it seems that God resting on, uh, on the seventh day had something to do with his relationship to the creatures he had made in his own image. And sure enough, we know from Genesis 3 that it was God's practice at the end of the day to walk in the garden in fellowship with Adam and Eve. That unhindered fellowship with the Creator seems to to be what it meant to live in God's rest. Of course, that kind of rest was short-lived. For sin entered the picture, and man became alienated from God. Still, God resting on the seventh day became the rationale for the weekly Sabbath, the day that God gave his people to rest and worship him. And so throughout the ages, mankind has continued to taste of that original rest, now largely lost, In fact, in Exodus 31, God calls uh, this a covenant with his people Israel, a sign of something greater. Let me read what it says there. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. So here in the creation account, we have the first reference to God's promised rest. Second in this text, in verse 6, our text speaks of Israel's failure to enter God's rest when at Kadesh Barnea they refused to enter the land of promise. We talked about this last week quite a little bit, how Israel often often romanticized the wilderness experience, but God saw it as a time of great rebellion. For he had promised them, 
a land of rest. He had promised them a life of peace, a, a place where they would experience his rest. And all of this he had promised as an inheritance for generations to come. God had promised to live among them and prosper them and sustain them with a fullness only hinted at by the seventh day Sabbath. But once again, sin raised its ugly head there at Kadesh Barnea. Unbelief and disobedience set in, and God's people refused to trust him and obey him and enter into that rest. Nevertheless, God continued to hold out the promise of rest for his people, even as he sent them out into the wilderness for 40 years. Which brings us to the third mention of rest, which is found in verse 8. The reference to Joshua finally bringing them into the land of promise. This occurred after Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after Moses died, after the entire adult population of the children of Israel died, with the exception of two men, Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, who said, it's a good land, God has promised us, let's go, though the people wouldn't go. This was a glorious time in Israel's history. As they entered the land under the leadership of Joshua, God went before them, enabling them to defeat their enemies one by one. He gave them a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which was divided into an inheritance for each of the tribes of Israel. They inherited cities they did not build, land they had not cleared, crops they had not planted, wealth for which they had not labored. Eventually they became a great nation, blessed by the Lord. God chose a place for his name to dwell in the midst of them there. The worship God had ordained was established. God gave them a king named David to govern them and to defeat their enemies. God's promise of rest seems to have been fulfilled at last. In fact, we read this in Joshua 21. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. God gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all God's, all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. God's promised rest, finally. Oh, but then there's a surprise in the story. For there's a fourth mention of rest. In verse 7, it's when King David challenged Israel not to harden their hearts and miss God's rest. Now, King David lived 400 years after Joshua led the people into the promised land. Many generations of God's people had enjoyed the growing prosperity and rest of that land. Indeed, never were there better times than during the reign of King David. But something was missing. The people lived in the land of promise with their borders constantly expanding. The sacrifices were being offered. The priesthood was functioning. The people celebrated the, the great feast days. The people loved their great king, a man of God. But David, with the insight that only God's spirit could give, perceived a problem, a hardness of heart, 
a coldness, a hollow form of godliness with little passion for God, an active, busy religion that knew nothing, really, of God's promised rest. And so in Psalm 95, which is repeatedly quoted here in Hebrews 3 and 4, David warned God's people, warned them about their hard hearts, called them to remember and not duplicate the unfaithfulness back in the wilderness, and pressed upon them the urgency of the situation. Deal with it today. As God continued to hold before his people this promise of rest. Four mentions. Four experiences. And now that's where chapter 4 actually begins. Quote, Therefore, since the promise of entering rest still stands, it's not all been fulfilled, still stands, which brings us to our second point. Jesus brings us into God's rest. Jesus brings us into God's rest. You know, sometimes in order to understand what the Bible is saying, we have to really work hard to try to put ourselves back in that situation, that cultural setting, uh, uh, that time, perhaps uh, hundreds, thousands of years ago, different time, different place, and listen carefully to what God was saying to those people and try to think how that somehow applies to us, but not, in, not here. Here God has laid it out for us. He starts with these references to the historical concepts of rest, which we've explored, and then he applies those concepts directly to his original readers, and that application applies equally directly to us. So in verses 1 and 9, we read of a rest which continues to be held uh, out to us today. In spite of all that God has done, all of the Sabbath celebrated for hundreds of years, all of the years of rest in the promised land, all the calls for renewal and, and spiritual rest or revitalization from David in his day, in spite of hundreds of years of God pursuing of uh, God's people pursuing God's rest, there still remains a rest, a better rest, which is held out to us. And we're challenged not to miss it. Now the key to understanding this, these verses, I think, is found in verses 9 and 10. There we read this. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. At first reading, at least in this translation, the NIV, this seems to be talking about a future eternal rest when we will rest from our labors. And there is, of course, such a coming reality. Our experience of God's rest is both already and not yet. But here, I don't believe God is telling us when we will enter or that we will enter an eternal rest. Here he is telling us how it is possible that we might enter his rest. So let me give you a different re rendering, a very literal, awkward rendering, perhaps, of verses 9 and 10. 
It goes like this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the entering into God's rest one, that's awkward, that's a masculine singular participle in the aorist or past tense. In other words, we would read it, in other words, we'd read, for the one who entered God's rest. Keep reading. Rested from his works, just as God did from his. I know it's a bit, bit, bit technical here, but stick with me for a minute. Who is the one who has already entered God's rest, just like God entered his own rest in Genesis 2 on the seventh day? Who is that? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus finishing his work of redemption. His death and resurrection and ascension is spoken of here as parallel to God finishing his work of creation. God finished his creative work and he rested, sanctifying the seventh day. He, he wanted the creatures he had made in his image to enjoy that rest with him. And in Genesis, we see some indication that that happened. But sin entered the picture and shattered that rest. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, God held before his people this promise of rest, this rest that was lost. The promise was in the weekly Sabbath. The promise was in the land of Canaan. The promise was in David's warnings and exhortations in Psalm 95. Still, those were only tokens of things to come. There was never a full restoration of that original rest because sin was always in the way. But something earth-shaking has now happened. Jesus has come to bring us finally into God's rest. Think of what he has done. He lived in perfect relationship with the Father. He lived in God's creation rest. He willingly went to the cross to atone for man's sin, the thing which had continually kept people away from God's rest. On the third day, God raised him from the dead, demonstrating his pleasure in the Son's saving work. And having completed his work, Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. He has entered again the Father's presence, sharing in his perfect rest. And as the completion of the Father's creative work held the promise of of entering God's seventh day rest, so the completion of Jesus' redemptive work, his saving work, fulfilled the signs given through the centuries and opened the door for the people of God to finally, fully enter the rest pictured back on the seventh day of creation. Jesus brings us into that rest. Now clearly... The work of the gospel is in view here. Verse 2 speaks of the gospel being preached and received by faith. Verse 3 states that it's we who believe who enter God's rest. Verse 6 mentions the gospel again as it was proclaimed in a primitive form in Moses' day. Jesus brings us into rest through the gospel of his grace. In fact, to make a point of the graciousness of the gospel... Hebrews uses a word for rest that emphasizes ceasing from labor. There are actually two major Greek words that are translated rest in English. One emphasizes ceasing from labor. 
The other emphasizes the restoration that comes from our ceasing from labor. These two words together kind of define the whole biblical picture of rest. But here, we're believing the gospel, trusting in Jesus, receiving God's grace is what's in view. The emphasis on the, is on the word which means to cease from your own working. So to enter God's rest is to stop depending on our own good works and rest in what Jesus has done. Now these Hebrew Christians were having trouble with that. They were being tempted in the face of persecution to turn away from the gospel, thinking they could return back to the law as a means of kind of working their way into rest as Israel had attempted to do for a long time, something the law was never intended to do. So the Spirit calls them and calls us back to simple faith in Jesus, back to believing the good news of the gospel by which Jesus gives us God's rest. Listen to how Charles Haddon Spurgeon describes the rest Jesus gives us. He says, do not tell me that there is no rest for us till we get to heaven. We who have believed in Jesus enter into rest right now. Why should we not do so? Our salvation is complete. The robe of righteousness in which we are clad is finished. The atonement for our sins is fully made. We are reconciled to God, beloved of the Father, preserved by his grace, and supplied by his providence with all that we need. We carry all our burdens to him and leave them at his feet. We spend our lives in his service. We find his ways to be ways of pleasantness and his paths to be paths of peace. Oh, yes, we have found rest unto our souls. Dear people, this is Jesus' invitation to us. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Through believing the gospel, Jesus died for my sins, rose from the dead, and gives me eternal life. Jesus brings us into God's rest. Having said that, at the same time, this text calls us to diligence in this matter. Verse 11 says, in effect, make every effort to enter into that rest or that cessation of effort. Make every effort to enter that cessation of effort or strive to end the striving. It sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But it makes perfect sense as we live it out. The Bible tells us to trust in Jesus. We have to give attention to that, though, or we will naturally revert to trusting ourselves. That's what everybody else does. The Bible calls us to let go of bitterness and resentment. But if you've ever tried that, you know that doesn't just happen. It's not easy. It's not a passive thing. You have to focus on that. The Bible calls us to count it all joy when we face trials. To do that, we have to fight to control how we think about our lives. The Bible calls us to grow in grace and in knowing Jesus. But that is never going to happen if all we do is watch football or go shopping. You see, God is calling us to a gracious rest, but a gracious rest 
that comes by an active faith in Jesus. A faith that abandons our hope in ourselves and our own efforts. But one that believes in Jesus enough to get up and follow him. A faith so single-minded that we could never ignore it or let it slip away. So in Matthew 11, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He goes on to say, Take my yoke on you. Learn of me, and you will find rest for your souls. Oswald Chambers described well this active rest. He writes, I will give you rest. That is, I will stay you. Not I will put you in bed and hold your hand and sing you to sleep. But I will get you out of bed and out of the languor and and exhaustion, out of being half dead while you are alive. I will so imbue you with the spirit of life that you will be stayed by the perfection of vital activity. It is not a picture of an invalid in a bath chair, but of a life of such a pitch of health that everything is at rest. And here again, as in David's day, the Spirit presses upon us the urgency of this matter. Note the emphasis on the word today in this passage again and again. Verse 7, God set a certain day, calling it today. This gospel demands our attention right now. There's no alternative. Only Jesus brings us into God's rest. So our text tells us there remains a kind of Sabbath rest for God's people. And so over the years, the church has focused a lot of attention on how to keep the Sabbath and all the list of things we can and cannot do. But interestingly, this word for Sabbath rest is not the normal word for Sabbath-keeping that's used in so many places earlier in the Bible. This is a word used nowhere else in the Bible. And the rest it speaks of is much more than what we think of as Sabbath-keeping. This Sabbath rest is a life of radical faith in Jesus that will not turn away from him no matter what the cost that rests in him. This Sabbath rest is a life of constantly being emptied of self and filled with the love of Christ. This Sabbath rest is a life of activity, of pursuing faithfulness, but never thinking that my salvation rests on the merit of what I've done, instead constantly resting myself on the merit of my Savior. That's how the Apostle Paul understood the meaning, this meaning of Sabbath rest in Colossians 2, he explained that things like the Old Testament, Old Testament Sabbath are, quote, a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus has finished his saving work. Therefore, our Sabbath rest now has little to do with a list of things we can or cannot do. It is all about Jesus. It is about trusting him. It is about enjoying his gracious favor. It's about walking with him in fellowship with the Father, already living in the eternal rest. For after the creation and for continuing centuries, God promised rest 
And now that his work of redemption is complete, Jesus brings us into that rest. Brings us in by believing the gospel and persevering in that faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to talk about rest and yet live lives of turmoil, live lives that seldom reflect us trust in you, live lives, Lord, that are so full of ourselves and so panicky when something is not under our control. Lord, to live lives that have so little hope and so little joy, teach us what it means to enter into your rest. Teach us, Lord, what it means to believe the gospel of grace and to rest in the Savior in whom alone we will ever know rest. And help us already now to be living in that rest in which we will dwell for all eternity. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.